Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. It is reassuring to us as we go through life um, uh, that God is leading us along the way. And um, whether we're young or whether we're old, if we're a child of God, He is leading us each and every day. And uh, whether uh, the day is a good day, as, as most people would describe it, um, things are going our way, things are happening that are make our lives easier, or we might say make our lives better, more enjoyable, He's leading us. And the same is true when the day goes completely awry, and life is not going according to plan whatsoever. Uh, for those of us who are the children of God, those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is our Savior, He leads us in every day. Um, and that's where we find the disciples here in the Gospel of John, as we've been working our way through here. Um, of course, the Lord in the upper room, the Last Supper, they've left that place, the upper room. They're making their way down toward the brook Kidron. They haven't crossed over yet. Uh, to make their way up the other side. Jesus is speaking to them. He's teaching them. Um, these, this is really an incredible portion of the Word of God. God in human flesh, who's come to die for the sins of the whole world, he's going to be crucified the very next day. His disciples are not fully aware of all that's going on. He's told them, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. They, they understand there's going to be a separation. They don't understand he's going to be crucified yet. Uh, Judas has not betrayed him with the kiss yet, though Judas has been identified. And Jesus knows all this is happening. His disciples are sorrowful, they're grieving, they're frustrated. Um, and Jesus is speaking to them, he's teaching them. And so there's instruction here that's not that wasn't just for those 11 men that were faithful to him or trying to be faithful to him. But it's instruction for you and for me as well. In John chapter 15, the first part, Jesus had told them that he, they needed to abide in him. They needed to continue in him. Um, in the middle part of chapter 15, he said, you need to love one another. You need to love one another sacrificially. The very same way that I have loved you, you need to love one another. And uh, we talked about that. I won't go back over that. But then everything, this conversation, though it's been about abiding and it's been about loving one another in chapter 15. And then we last week we looked at a portion of scripture that was just not pleasant. Um, and Jesus informed his disciples, the world is going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And up to this point, for the past three years, while they've been with Jesus and he's been teaching and preaching and doing miracles, uh, incredible things. Uh, the religious Jews had hated Jesus. They hated him. Um, they sought to kill him. They tried to entrap him and ensnare him. They lied about him. And so, but for those three years, the disciples had experienced some measure of hate, but they hadn't been the primary target. Does that make sense? Jesus had been the primary target. Now, it's one thing to be around someone who's not appreciated, um, but, but, uh, or disesteemed. It's one thing to be in close contact with that person, and you feel their grief, and you bear some of it, but it's not your grief. 
Um, it's another thing to be the individual who is despised, who is disesteemed, who is ridiculed and mocked and scorned and lied about. You know, it's a different thing to be in that position. And Jesus now looks at his disciples, as we saw last week, and he says, they hated me, and they're going to hate you too. You are going to become the primary target. They're going to focus all of their rage and all of their anger and all of their unbelief and all of their distrust and all of their lies. You are now going to become the primary target. And uh, you can imagine the disciples taking all of this in. And then we come to the end of chapter 15, and we're going to look at these two verses. And then down into chapter 16, Jesus teaches them, but to counter the hatred of the world for you, I'm going to give you my spirit or the comforter. and He's going to live within you. And really this morning, I want to consider what it is that the Holy Spirit does as Jesus draws our attention to it in this particular passage of Scripture. You know, we, we, we could ask the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? And we'll, we'll answer that this morning. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, but when the Comforter has come, in the, amidst all of this hatred toward you, when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. The word offended there has the idea of to trip up, to stumble. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying, if I, w- if I wasn't telling you this, when all of the hatred comes at you, when the opposition of life comes at you, you would trip up, you'd fall. So you need to be prepared for this. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Of course, out of the apostles, all of them would die a martyr's death, except for John, who they say was uh, dipped in boiling oil and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. So he suffered as well. Uh, Verse number three, and he goes on, he says, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. In other words, you didn't need to know these things then, because you weren't the primary target. Verse five. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? I hope, I hope you're thinking, I hope the wheels are turning. Hadn't Peter asked him that? Hadn't, hadn't Thomas inquired and said, we don't know the way, we don't know where you're going? What's Jesus saying here? None of you ask me where I'm going. Uh, and, and the context here tells us that they weren't so concerned about where what his going meant to him. They were consumed what his departure meant for them. What does that tell us about where these men were? They were selfish. They were self-centered. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going away. 
I'm leaving you. And all they could think about was themselves. They didn't think about what Jesus was going to suffer. And they didn't think about or consider the glories that lay ahead for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue reading verse number, let's see here, where was I? Verse number six, he says, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. I got a question. I know we're going to come back to this. I got a question. I got to ask it. How many of us would like Jesus to be with us here in person? How many of us think that it is better for us or better for you in your life where you're at today that the Holy Spirit is with you than Jesus in the flesh being with you? That's what he's saying. It's actually better for you for the Holy Spirit to be with you. Jesus is saying this, then for me to be with you in the flesh. This is an amazing statement. He says, for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove, convince, convict is the word, reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, Jesus says, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Let's pray together and we'll look at uh, these verses and we'll answer the question really as it is posed to us here. uh, What is it that the Holy Spirit is doing and what shall we expect? him to be doing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. So many different people under the sound of my voice, different things going on in life, and yet many are your children. Many of us are saved. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would better know him as he is a person, as he is God living within us, Help us to know what his purpose is. And Lord, help us to be in in agreement with his purpose in our lives on a daily basis. Life would be a whole lot more enjoyable, Lord, for us. We would have a whole lot more joy and satisfaction if we would be in agreement with your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible says a lot about the Holy Spirit, and this morning is not a message, uh, one message on all of what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person, and then the Holy Spirit would leave a person. In fact, the penmen of the Old Testament, the books of the Bible, um, they they were holy men of God, and they would speak, they would pen down the words that God would give them as the Spirit of God moved upon them. 
But the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament did not indwell those saints, though they believed in God and believed upon God. He did not indwell them, He would, and he did not stay with them continually. He would come upon them, and then he would remove himself from them. In the New Testament, uh, the Bible teaches us that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Uh, That is uh, when we receive that new body and uh, we are with the Lord forever. Um, So the Holy Spirit in the New Testament functions differently amongst those people who are followers of God. The Bible says a lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. He is not less important or less powerful than God the Father. He is not less than Jesus Christ, God the Son. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches God's people, that he loves us. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe a sermon is being preached and you're being convicted about something? Um, and and maybe you even feel like I'm preaching right at you. Um, and, and, you and, and Pastor Gosnell mentioned this morning in Sunday school, uh, did you say something about stop reading my diary or something like that? Um, and here's the thing. I haven't read your diary, right? Um, I don't know where you're at. Uh, I don't know where your thoughts are. I might be able to surmise. I might be able to come up with some ideas where you might be. But frankly, I don't know where you're at. I don't know to what degree uh, you're suffering or hardships are in your lives, but the Holy Spirit does. And so it's amazing how I can preach the word of God, but the Holy Spirit takes his sword, the word of God, and he specifically makes application in your life right where you need it. That's the Holy Spirit. He teaches us. He helps us understand the word of God. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit of God loves us and that he guides us throughout the week, each day, each week. It tells us that he comforts us and he encourages us and he consoles us. And some of us resist his consolation, by the way. You know, just let me, I just want to stew a little bit. I want to be in my flesh. Okay, that's pretty disgusting. We all, I suppose, have done that. Some of us, I think, are in the bad habit of doing that. It's almost like part of our identity. And for those of us who that's how we've been operating, it's time to say, you know what, that's the old man. I've been saved from that. You know what, I don't have to stew. I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit in my life. Let him console you. Let him console you. Uh, Receive his consolation. So the Bible also gives us several analogies about the Holy Spirit. Uh, One of them is fire. The Bible likens the Holy Spirit to fire. And fire is powerful. Fire gives light. Fire can be quenched. And we're told to quench not the Holy Spirit. The Bible likens the Holy Spirit to wind. Um, Wind, you can't see it, but you can see what it accomplishes. Wind is also powerful. Um, The Bible likens the Holy Spirit to a dove. And a dove is a... Um, it's it's not a bird of prey. It's not a predatory bird, you know. It's doves are seem to be easily spooked away. Dove have kind doves have kind eyes, soft eyes, gentle eyes, and uh, doves can be hurt, I suppose. And the Bible tells us that we're not to grieve 
the Holy Spirit. And we can grieve him. The Holy Spirit, God himself living within us. You and I can make him hurt. We can cause him to ache. And the idea is to cause him to weep and to grieve. We can literally cause him grief in our lives. How many of us here in this room have experienced grief and heartache? Yeah. We know what that's like. A heart that is aching. Grief. We can do that. We can do that to the Holy Spirit. Um, he is the third person of the Trinity, is how he is often referred to. But he has a personality. Sometimes we think of God and we think of the Holy Spirit as, you know what, I hurt, I ache, but I can't hurt him. But actually, I can. The one who God has given to me to encourage me, and to strengthen me, and to teach me the truth, and to help me to remember the truth, and to uh, convict me when I'm do on the wrong path, and can who consoles me, who knows me most intimately, I can hurt him. I can hurt him. He's never done anything bad to me. He's only helped me. He's only encouraged me. So in the passage, I want to notice three truths that Jesus um, draws our attention to, three works of the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind, it's coming on the uh, coattails of the world is going to hate you. You are going to face some serious opposition. Um, they didn't know it, but most of them were going to die martyrs' deaths. And they're, they're going to be given the great commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they would do that. And they were going to die for it. And in the face of the opposition, Jesus says, but I'm going to give you someone. Someone who's going to live within you. And this is what he's... This is what his purpose is. His first purpose is to testify of the Father. Look at verse number 26 and 27 of chapter 15. He says this, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he, the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he shall testify of me. He's going to give testimony of me. Verse number 27, and ye also shall bear witness. You're going to see what he can do. You're going to bear witness of what I have done. Because the Spirit of God is living in you, because ye have been with me from the beginning. I'm not going to take much time with verses 26 and 27, but the Holy Spirit testifies of the Father. That's what it says there. He comes to bear witness of the truth, the Father, God, in a world of lies. The Holy Spirit bears witness, he testifies through God's people as he teaches us his word. He testifies, he tells the truth about who God is. Now, you don't hear the Holy Spirit speaking out and about. He testifies through you and me as he works in us. But it's not our work. It's his work. He's the one. And as we bear witness and as we experience the salvation of the Lord, as we experience who God is in his goodness, in his holiness, in his mercy, 
in His love. It's the Holy Spirit teaching us who God is, and then we tell others who God is. This is, this is wonderful. Just recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've made the comment to a friend of mine about the mercy of God and how overwhelmed I have been recently by the long-suffering and the graciousness and the mercy of God. And at the age of 40, as a pastor, though I was born into a Christian family, saved at a young age, baptized, grew up in a Christian home, Heard a lot of sermons. I've been told a long time ago, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. He's long-suffering. But it's been the past year or so where I have been learning more and more experientially about who God is. And specifically in the area of he's holy, but he's full of mercy. He's so compassionate. He's gracious. He gives me what I don't deserve. He has suffered long. And you know, my love for him is growing. It's not been that long ago. And uh, this past September, my or past September, my neighbor Clint passed away. Had a heart attack, 35 years of age. I'd had the opportunity to do a Bible study with him for over a year. And my in my uh, 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 kitchen table with, with him and his wife. You know, and I can remember before that, for about a year and a half, Clint would come across the street on occasion. Whenever, almost whenever he'd see me out there in my yard, he'd walk over. It was a long walk. He'd walk over, and he would just shoot the breeze with me. And often what would come up were frustrations that he was having in life. Frustrations maybe with being a dad to children. Frustrations about being a husband and who he was as a husband and some things that he had done in the past and where his life was. And and here's what happened in those conversations. I found myself telling him in different ways over and over, just I'm washing off of a lawnmower and we're talking and I would find myself telling him, you know, Clint, God is a, a, he's a merciful God. God is a forgiving. He'd talk about all the things he'd done. And it was interesting because he'd keep coming back. He'd say, you know what, Pastor, I wasn't completely honest with you. More bad things I've done. And I'd say, I don't need to know. I don't want to know. He'd say, well, i really like to get off my chest. And there we would go again. And I'd be able to tell him, God is a forgiving God. Now, why could I tell him that? Well, the Bible says it. I suppose I could quote a verse. And sometimes I would quote a passage of Scripture. And, but I would be able to say this. Not only does the Bible say that. But Clint, I have experienced his forgiveness. Clint, I'm not a perfect dad either. I make mistakes too. And you know what, Clint? God is merciful to me. And he is long-suffering with me. And he forgives me. And you see, this is called being a witness. Not because I'm a church member. Not because I went to Bible college. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a person who God has saved. And he has given me his Holy Spirit within me to take these truths that are written in black and white and to help me to know them experientially. I've experienced God. I've experienced his love. I've experienced who he is. You know what? You can experience him too. 
And so God gives Jesus sent, the Father sent this spirit to testify of the Father. And, you know, in the world today, and it is a world of lies, and you and I face these lies on a regular basis. The devil, of course, is called the father of lies, and he's very active in this world. He's far too clever for you and for me, but the devil is no match for the Holy Spirit who lives within us to help us to know the truth. Uh, and, and, and so this, uh, Satan may reign in this world and in the lives of many men and the lives of many women and boys and girls by his lies and deception, but the Holy Spirit exposes those lies of the devil in order to free the world from their bondage. And all of us here who are saved have been freed from that bondage that we used to be in. So the Holy Spirit is the truth, and he leads people to Jesus Christ. But he leads people to Christ as he works in our lives. This is very, very important. Oh, he's working. But he speaks the truth to others through you and through me. They see the truth in you and me. Now that gets a little cloudy when you and I aren't following him. When you and I are insisting on our own way, you know what? I'm going to live life for me. I, what about me? What about me? I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I don't have to keep all these things. What about me? What about my happiness? When I live that way, and if, if I live that way, you'd look at me and go, who, who are you? I remember when. And I could tell you, well, well, you know what, that was fine and good, but, but I wasn't having enough me time. And it's not just for pastors, it's for all of us. So secondly, I notice, not only does the Holy Spirit testify of the Father, but secondly, the Holy Spirit reproves the world. Again, he does this through you and me. And by the way, this is why the world hates God's people so much. And Jesus tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come. He's going to testify to the world of who God the Father is as you witness in your life, as you experience God in your life. He's going to be testifying to the world of who God is. But not only that, um, he's going to reprove the world. But he's going to do it through you. And this is why the world's going to hate you. Um, there are three main parts to this section here in chapter 16, verse 1 all the way down through verse number 11. There are really three parts in this section, and I'll give them to you. There's the hatred of the synagogue toward these, these disciples of Jesus. Look at verse number 1 in chapter 16. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. Shall not trip, be tripped up. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Now, up to this point in time, they had gone into the synagogues. They had reasoned with Jewish people who believed in God, the God of the Bible. They had reasoned with them about the salvation of the Lord. They had reasoned with them about the Messiah. Uh, they would, they had re would reason with them about how a man could be saved, how a man could be justified. Not through the law, not by the law, not by our own works, but by by God. Verse number two, he says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. 
And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. So Jesus warns his disciples, or he says, they're going to they're gonna throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to hate you. And Jesus didn't want his disciples to fall or to be tripped up to stumble when the opposition became more intense. You know, the synagogue for Jesus' disciples, as for all Jewish people, would have been the central part of Jewish life. Take the most important part of your life and have it ripped away and have the people who have been so important to you, this place of community and this place which has been a place of worship, have it torn away from you. And not just not you're just not allowed to, to come, but now they actually hate you. They've identified you as a Nazarene, a follower of Jesus. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the, the opposition is going to intensify. So the synagogue had been the center of Jewish religious life in Israel. And wherever Jews were found in a community, if there were ten Jewish men, they would form a synagogue. And the word offended there, you see it in verse number, is it verse number Verse number one, the latter part, he says, I'm telling you these things so you won't be offended. It's the word scandalizo, scandalizo. It's a Greek word, right? But what word come, what English word comes to your mind when I say scandalizo? Scandal, yeah. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be tripped up. We get our English word scandal from that word. It means to scandalize or to cause, cause to stumble. Is what the word means. And so, in fact, the disciples were offended. In fact, they were very offended. In fact, this very night they were offended when Jesus was arrested. Uh, hold your place in John and turn back to Mark, would you? This word is found in another place. Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And the Bible tells us here that Jesus' disciples were very offended this very night when he was betrayed and he was arrested. Mark chapter 14. Look at me if you, verse, if you would at verse number 26. I'll read down through verse 31. It says, And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. That would have been where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended. You're going to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And notice Peter here disagreeing with Jesus. Peter says unto him, Although all shall be offended, although the rest of the disciples will stumble, and what's going to happen, Peter says, yet will not I. Now, somebody tell me, what did Peter do this very night? He, he betrayed Jesus how many times? Three times. He cursed. And when someone said, you, you're one of his disciples, he said, I know not the man. I, I don't know him. I, I've never met him. That's called denial. 
That's called being tripped up. That's called when pressure starts to come to bear on the disciples. He's willing to stand with him. Not long before, he's just taken out a, a, a long knife, a short sword, and whacked off a man's ear, right? He's willing to fight that guy. But when all alone, when everything's going the wrong way in his life that night, someone says, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of his learners, one of his followers? He says, I, I don't know the man. But before this, he's saying, oh, I won't be offended. Verse 30, and Jesus saith unto him, verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me three times thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. They all said it. Not just Peter. They all were hiding. Yeah, there are times in our lives that you and I face the same. We're not in the same situation. You can turn back to John 15, but we find ourselves in our lives sometimes saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't want what he wants. I'm not willing to go through what he has gone through. I'm not willing to be faithful to him and what he wants for my life. And we stumble at what he wants for our lives. And Jesus is saying to them here in John chapter 16, there's going to be hatred that you're, you're going to face. You're going to be, I don't want you to be offended. I don't, want, I don't want you to stumble and trip up. So I'm telling you these things. We could also remember back to John chapter 9, where the man was born blind. You remember they kicked him out of the synagogue because he believed upon Jesus. So it was already happening, and that's my point. It was already happening. They were being kicked out of the synagogues already. And the threat of being put out of the synagogue was having a major impact. In fact, you remember in John chapter 12, where many of the religious Jews believed upon Jesus, but they weren't public about it. Why? Because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. It was like losing your life and, and all of your friends and People aren't going to look at you the same, and they're not going to talk to you the same, and you might lose out in some business along the way too. And Why? Because you're not identifying with the way they believe. You're identifying with Jesus Christ and what he's been teaching. We all have to ask ourselves the question, our thinking, our, is our thinking, is your thinking more in line with what Jesus says and who he is or is our thinking more in line with the world in which we live and more in line with our flesh? Jesus is telling them that they need to know that the hostility is going to continue and it's going to get worse. By the time this account of the gospel was penned down, the Sanhedrin had actually incorporated a curse on the Nazarenes, the followers of Jesus, to make sure that none of Jesus' followers ever participated in the services in the synagogues. And I'll read you the curse that they came up with. Of course, this is not biblical. This is what the religious Jews of the day came up with. And it was in place before John penned down the gospel here that we're studying. And they said this, quote, Let Nazarenes, which means the followers of Jesus, and heretics perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be enroll, enrolled with the righteous. End quote. 
So obviously, if you're a follower of Jesus, you weren't feeling too welcome at the synagogue. Jesus' warning even went further. And look at verse number two, the latter part. He says, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So not only are they going to throw you out of what is central to Jewish life, not only are you going to lose your friends, your neighbors, and those, your co-workers perhaps, and you're going to lose out on community, which was a big part of Jewish culture. Not only are you going to lose out on that, but there's coming a point where the religious Jews are actually going to say that they're serving God by putting you to death. Over in Acts chapter 6, we read about this. Look there, Acts chapter 6, take a right in your Bibles. It's not too far away. Acts chapter 6, look it with me if you would at verse number 8. The church has started. It's not been, it's not that old at this point in Acts chapter 6. Several verses I'll read to you. Acts chapter 6, look at me at verse number 8. I'll read down through verse 12 here. Here we find in verse 8 a man by the name of Stephen. He's a deacon, okay? He was a godly man. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith. So this was a man who took God at his word and full of power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Liberian, or Libertines and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So there's this, they're arguing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Where, what would that have been that was speaking through him? The Holy Spirit. Then they suborned men, that is, they threw in stealthily, or introduced by collusion, Men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. In other words, they paid someone or they introduced some men to lie about Stephen. Okay, Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to council. Now you can read further about this, about the conversation that they were having. But look over to chapter 7 in verse 51. And between what I just read all the way to chapter 7, verse 51, you can read about the council as he speaks full of the Holy Spirit, and they cannot answer him. And after he's done speaking the truth in, in Acts chapter 7, in verse 51, the Bible says this, ye, he, Stephen speaking, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, and not just those things, but all that he's been saying, when they heard these things in verse 54, they were cut to the heart. It tells me they were convicted, they were convinced of the truth. But they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. 
And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord in unity and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes, their cloaks, at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Saul here is not saved yet. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen. He calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and died. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. I'll read down through verse 3. And Saul was consenting unto his death. He was all for it. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc. The word havoc is devastation of the church, entering into every house and hailing, dragging men and women, committed them to prison. I'll stop there. This is what Jesus was warning his disciples, his apostles about. This is what was going to come. Look back to John chapter 16. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be startled by the intensifying hatred. The disciples were few and their enemies were many. And he's saying, I don't want you to, to, uh, to stumble. I don't want you to fall. We know they were going to trip and stumble a little bit, but he says that you need to know what's coming. And all of this is for the purpose of the Holy Spirit reproving, convincing the world of sin. Look at verse number four. We notice Jesus also talks about his departure. Uh, John chapter 16 is where we're at. Look at verse four, the latter part. I'll read down through verse number six. It says this, And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? How is this going to affect you, Lord? But because I have said these things unto you, your sorrow, grief, hath filled your heart. You know, if the opposition in the synagogue wasn't bad enough, Jesus reminds them what they were so frustrated with, and that was that Jesus was going to be leaving them. One of those things, maybe it could be said like this, Lord, you got us into this, and now you're leaving us behind. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, you brought me this far to endure this. Lord, where are you? Where are you in all of this? I'm suffering. I'm struggling. You're leaving me to go through this? Now, we know the Bible tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but have you ever felt like he's not with you or that you're all alone? And that's what the disciples would have been thinking here. And so from their perspective, Jesus is leaving them, and, he, and he, he brings this up again to them. In verse number four, again, look there, the latter part, he says, And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. He hadn't, Jesus hadn't emphasized the hatred of the world and the rejection of Israel and the synagogues because the rejection and hatred before had been aimed at him primarily. Jesus was the one who had borne the brunt of the world's hatred. Why talk about the hatred of the world and the rejection of Israel before it was necessary? Why fill their hearts with fear before they were ready to bear it? Jesus had given them time to get to know him. Three years, he had given them time to ponder his teaching and 
time to grow and time to be strengthened before they would need to exercise a deeper faith. And by the way, God does that with you and me as well. You know, when I was a five-year-old in downtown Detroit, Michigan with my father, and I trusted Christ as my personal Savior, I didn't know what he had planned for me in the future. I didn't know some of the temptations I would face. I didn't know the weaknesses of myself as well as I do now. I didn't know how intense the spiritual battle would be. I didn't know then what it would be like for people who claimed to be saved to attack them. I didn't know that being a pastor someday would be unpopular in the world today, or the things that I believe that because the Bible says it is true would be unpopular and rejected in the world today. I didn't know any of that when I was a five-year-old boy. I just knew that I was a sinner and that God loved me in spite of my sinfulness and sent his son to die for me and took my place, and I loved him for it. That's all I knew. I didn't know any of those other things, and there are other things we could talk about. You know, when God called Israel out of Egypt, he didn't tell them about the giants in Canaan. He didn't tell them about the great walled cities that were there. They were going to have to find those things out in time, right on time. But by then, they would have witnessed God's delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt. By then, they would have witnessed the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, and they would have witnessed God's precise guidance with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They would have witnessed and experienced God's daily provision of manna, right? And quail, they would have drunk water from the rock by that time. They would have experienced war with Amalek, and they would have experienced the victory and the salvation of the Lord. And so God prepared them by allowing them to experience the power and deliverance of God. But did Israel still waver when they heard of the giants and the great walled cities? Yes, they did. No, you and I waver too, don't we? We've experienced the salvation of the Lord. We've experienced miracles. We've experienced his power, his goodness, his provision, his faithfulness to us. And every single one of us at times in our lives still find ourselves wavering a little bit. I know this is what the right thing to do is this, but, uh, you know, this makes more sense. Or this will be more enjoyable. I can't help but notice how Jesus is the one who reintroduces the topic of his departure, too. You you know, God doesn't avoid the hard realities of life with you and me. He doesn't avoid them. He's fully aware of them. He is fully aware of the heartache. He is fully aware of the temptation. He is fully aware of the grief. And Jesus addresses them gently but directly in verse 5. Look there again. He says this. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? Now, I mentioned it earlier, but didn't Peter ask him? Back in John 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Wouldn't that qualify? Or maybe, how about uh, Thomas in John chapter 14, uh, in verse number 5? Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? That's kind of another way of saying, where are you going? We don't know how to get there. We'd like to know. We, we, where are you going? So hadn't they asked? Well, Jesus hadn't forgotten about Peter. 
And he hadn't forgotten about Thomas and their concerns or their questions about his departure. The disciples, they were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed with how Jesus' departure would affect them. But they were not overwhelmed and they were not concerned at all by how Jesus' departure was going to affect him. Now, do you ever feel sorry for the disciples as, as we're studying this passage? I do. Kim, you're leaving them. You're leaving them. And it's going to get really hard. And they're going to die. And they're going to preach. And they're going to be ridiculed and mocked. And many are going to believe. And there are going to be miracles that are accomplished. But it's going to be hard. So there's a part of me, yeah, I, I feel sorry for the disciples. But we all know what was going to happen to Jesus. The disciples didn't. We do. And they weren't concerned about what was going to happen to him, all they could think of was the empty place at the table, right? He's not going to be there. We're not going to have fellowship with him anymore. We're not going to be able to talk to him anymore. They were not considering at all the horror and suffering that was closing in upon him, the agony of anticipation. And we know that he, had, he suffered that way as he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. There were no crown of thorns at that period of time. He hadn't been flogged or beaten at all. He was not under trial. The sins of the world had not come to bear upon him yet. And yet he suffered just in anticipating what was going to come. They weren't concerned about the betrayal that he was facing of Judas or the false accusations or the hatred of those who knew much of the word of God, but still rejected him. They weren't concerned about the ridicule and the mocking and the torture and the abuse or the rejection of the people of Israel who just prior were, had been say, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, Hosanna, Hosanna. But now or the very next day are going to be screaming uh, angrily, crucify him, crucify him. Disciples aren't thinking about these sort of things. They're not thinking about the cross or the nails being driven into his hands and feet or the weight of sin upon his sinless body. They could have asked, Lord, what will your departure mean for you? God, what is this going to mean for you? But in their selfishness, all they could think about was their own sorrow. Now, This is human, and I'm not being too hard on them. This is human. But it was not godly. And they had no idea of the glorious place that Jesus was going. Again, all they can think about is the empty seat at the table. It's so normal. Many of you in this room have loved ones who have God has taken home to be with them in glory. In your heart, there's still a hole. Time can help. Busyness of schedules can help. The hole is still there. Would agree. For some, it is immense. For some, it's not as big as it used to be. You know, these men, all they could think about was what they had lost, what they were going to lose. They weren't thinking about what Jesus was going to gain. I'm not being harsh on you this morning. We ought to remember what those who have those who have gone on before us, what they have gained. 
It needs to rejoice our hearts. Instead of, instead of speaking selfishly, they could have spoken love about the happiness that his departure would mean to him. Maybe if they'd been a little less selfish and a, lot, a little more loving, their, their understandable grief, and I, and I do, I, I, I'm not being hard on them here because missing someone is normal and natural, and, and it's not wrong. But their grief because of the separation that was soon to be could have been salved by the joy that lay before Jesus. What lay before Jesus after the cross and the crucifixion? What lay before him? Well, a reunion in heaven. What a reunion that must have been. As he rose triumphant from the grave and tied up some loose ends over a period of time here on earth and then ascended. What a reunion that was. And a reception what it must have been like, and the praise and adoration of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And worship, oh, the worship in heaven for the Lord Jesus Christ, the throne at the right hand of the Father in glory and honor. You know, it would have encouraged their hearts to consider Jesus seated on the right hand of the Father on their behalf. It would have encouraged their hearts to think that they have a friend at God's right hand, a great high priest, touched with the feelings of their infirmities, an advocate with the Father, and one who is able to intercede for them in, in power, and not just having some power, but all power and sovereign power, the ability to do whatever he wants to do as we need him to do it. But instead, these men are filled with natural but unspiritual sorrow. Look at verse 6. He says, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. I'm amazed by the tender love of our great shepherd for the disciples. He's not frustrated with them. I'm amazed by it. He submerges his own feelings of grief in order to deal with their grief even though every step they're taking is bringing him closer to betrayal, closer to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Christ's love for us is beyond measure. Our Lord just went on loving them and pouring the balm of his sympathy and his limitless concern onto their broken hearts and their frightened souls. And he does the same for you and for me if we'll let him. And all of what Jesus was saying was leading up to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had already told his disciples about this other comforter. And he says here that it's, it's expedient for them that Jesus go away so that he can send the Holy Spirit. That just almost doesn't seem. They weren't Bible. I'm not sure we'd agree with that. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away... The Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. I highly doubt that the disciples agreed with Jesus on this point. I don't think they agreed at all. I am sure that they would have much rather preferred the physical presence of Jesus to the invisible presence of the Holy Spirit at this point. And they aren't able to grasp the significance of the replacement of the limited bodily presence of Jesus for the unlimited presence of the Holy Spirit. 
They didn't know the Holy Spirit yet. Certainly they didn't know him as Jesus knew him. I want to give an illustration for this. Suppose, and I'm a big word suppose, I don't do this often, okay? This is an illustration, and this is not what happened. But suppose Jesus had risen from the grave and said, I'm not going to return to heaven. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to set up the kingdom. And Peter, you're going to be in charge of the scheduling. The office is going to be in the upper room. And Peter, you're going to be in charge of scheduling people to come and see me as they desire to. Now, how many of us would want to talk to Jesus? you have any questions for him? You need some wisdom on a matter. You need some comfort along the way as life goes on. Well, yeah, we'd all say, I'd like to talk. But he's limited. He's limited himself to the human body. So he there in the office, maybe, maybe uh, each year he might have taken a trip different parts of the world to different countries and set up office there to take visits. And he might have had to tell Peter if this were true, and it is not. He might have had to tell Peter, we're going to limit the office visits to 15 minutes per person. And because of the number of people on the face of the earth, it's only going to be one visit per lifetime. Because there just isn't enough. 15 minutes is all they have. Oh, you and I can bring someone with us take copious notes. So when we leave the office visit, have you ever left the doctor's office and walked out and your wife asks you, what did he say? And you say, I don't know. Well, what's wrong? I don't know. You did go to the doctor, didn't you? I did. What's wrong? I don't know. You know, okay, so you, you sit down with Jesus and you've got important things, important questions. You need his help tells you, and you'd have to maybe bring some people to write down some notes, you can compare notes. Well, this is what he said. No, that's not what I understood. I thought it was this. For 15 minutes. Now, would that be enough? No. It would never be enough. All the questions of the world, 15 minutes, occasional trips, the waiting list would be endless. People would wait a lifetime for a 15-minute meeting, and many people would never make it. And so Jesus says to his disciples in verse 7, It is expedient for you that I go, not only to accomplish taking the sins of the whole world upon his body, that we might be justified and declared righteous, that we might be saved from our sin but that he might ascend to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, that the Father might send the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ to live within each and every one of his followers, those who have put their faith and trust in him, for every moment of every day, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, lives within us. And I can go to him at any moment with my fears. And I can go to him at any moment with my questions. And I can look to his word and I can pray, Holy Spirit, help me to understand this. And I can trust that his counsel is always available and always right. His comfort is ever present. His consolation is there. Very personal for me. 
You know, there are times you might sit in a, a, a room like this for a sermon like this and you might get some measure of comfort. And you might think even at times, you know, I think pastor might understand what I'm going through. And other times you think pastor has no idea what I'm going through. But you know what? The Holy Spirit does. Jesus says to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go. Look at verse number eight. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. The word reprove there is a legal term. It means to bring to light, to expose, to convict, to convince. It has the idea of to pronounce the verdict. When the Spirit of God has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit into this, into you, into you as my disciples to, to convict, to convince the world. And the purpose of the reproving is not to condemn the world, notice in the passage, but to bring the world to salvation. And what does the Holy Spirit within Christ's followers reprove the world of? Well, he says three things there to convince them of unbelief, the sin of unbelief. Look at verse 9. Of sin... Because they believe not on me. Now they hadn't. When Jesus was there, many rejected him. They didn't believe. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he could, they, he could take their sins away. They didn't believe that he was God, the Son of God. They didn't believe. Many of them didn't believe. The same is true today. You know, people do not go to hell because of sin. You know that? People do not go to hell because of sin. Sin is not the problem. In John chapter 3, verse number 18, it says this, He that believeth on him is not condemned. A person can be a sinner of the most grievous nature, and if he believes upon Christ, his sin cannot keep him from heaven. He will be cleansed. Sin is not the problem. Jesus has made a provision for that. God has made a provision for that. He said, goes on to say this, But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People go to hell because they do not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why people go to hell. Sin is not the reason. Now, unbelief is sin. But if a person will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved from their sin. In the law of God and the conscience of man convicts sinners of their sin, but it is the Holy Spirit within God's people that expose the unbelief of the lost world. In other words, it is the witness of the believers. It is our witness, our experiencing of who God is. And I've talked about this already. His goodness, His mercy, His love, His grace, His holiness, His justice. All of these things. I've experienced these things. The Spirit of God has taught them to me. And it is the witness of believers by the work of the Holy Spirit that convinces the world of their need to trust the Lord. And that's what was happening when Clint would come across the road. Time and time and time and time again. And the message was always the same. Clint, I'm trusting the Lord. You can trust Him. I can trust Him. This is who He is. And this is what He's done for me. And this is what He'll do for you. This is called being a witness of who God is. Are we witnesses? Are we saying yes to the Spirit of God and experiencing the salvation of the Lord? So that when we interact with those lost loved ones, those people that we work with, when they're grieving and hurting, and this went, this is also true for uh, Doug Hart. 
one of the detectives at Flint Township. While he was struggling, uh, sometimes in the softball field and left field as we'd get ready for another inning, he'd say something to me and my words would be simply something like this, Doug, God will deliver you. How could I know that? How can I say that? Well, not only does the Bible say it, but I've experienced it. I'm a witness. Experienced it. Not just something in the past, but I'm experiencing it today. He won't let me go. My flesh wants to go. He won't let me. This is the salvation of the Lord. Not only to convince the world of the sin of unbelief, but in verse 10, notice, to convince of righteousness. He says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. And notice he says this, to, to reprove the world of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Wouldn't that make more sense? The Holy Spirit has come to reprove the world of unrighteousness. But no, no. To convince, convict the world of righteousness. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect Lamb of God whom they crucified. The, the world received Him not, John 1 tells us. They accused Him of being a blasphemer and a lawbreaker and a deceiver and of even being demon-possessed, they said of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit convicts the world of Jesus' righteousness as He reveals Jesus in the Bible. Look at verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you, the, the truth. And then verse 11, to convince the world of judgment. Look at verse 11. And of judgment, because the prince of, the, of this world is judged, is being judged, not will be judged. Prince of this world. It's not just to convince the world that they are going to be, but that the prince of this world, their God, the God of this world, is being judged. This is interesting to me. Jesus isn't talking about judgment to come. He's talking about a judgment that's hap that was happening then. And Jesus was referring to the judgment of Satan that took place when Jesus died upon the cross. In chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus had said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. You know, Satan may be the prince of this world, but he is a defeated prince. His time is limited. His power is limited. Satan has already been judged. And the verdict has already been announced. And you can read about it in the Word of God. And all that must take place is the execution of the sentence, which is going to happen upon Jesus' return. You know, when a lost sinner is under conviction, he sees the folly and evil of his unbelief. And when he's under conviction, he'll confess that he doesn't measure up to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when he comes under conviction, he's convinced by the Spirit of God of his sinfulness he realizes that he's under condemnation because he belongs to this world and the devil. The only person who can rescue him, a sinner from such a horrible state, is Jesus Christ. But there can be no, there can be no conversion without conviction. And there can be no conviction apart from the Spirit of God using the Word of God through the witnesses, that's you and me, 
in this world. It's really a matter of life and death. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide us and to give us right words and to enable us to patiently glorify Jesus Christ. I'll close with this, some questions, and we'll be done. What are you doing with the Holy Spirit? Verse 12 down through verse 15 tells us that he'll guide us into all truth. Are you responding to him in obedience? Or are you insisting on your own way? The way for the disciple is not an easy way. Certainly not a fleshly way. Do you trust him? Do you trust the Holy Spirit? Do you love him? Do you love him? There are moments, there have been moments in my life where I didn't trust him. I mean after salvation. I mean moments of weakness. I mean dark moments. Where in my flesh, I'm thinking, I I know he says his ways are perfect, but this sure doesn't feel perfect. I know he says that his thoughts toward me are good. I know the Bible says his ways are best, but I'm not I'm not seeing it. I have to be reminded, do I trust him? There have been moments where I haven't loved him. There have been moments where you haven't loved him either. The Bible says we if you Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There have been many moments where I haven't loved him. I haven't obeyed what he says. Are you quenching him? Are you extinguishing what he's trying to do in your life? Are we grieving him? Are we causing to ache and hurt? Are we, or are we saying yes to him? Say yes to him. Say yes to the one who loves you like nobody else loves you, and yet loves you even while he knows you. He goes with you everywhere you go. He knows every thought you ever have and I ever have. He sees everything that we do. And he loves us all the same. It never dwindles. Say yes to him. Let's say yes to him. We can trust him. Let's let him have his way in our lives. And the result is we're witnesses. Shining light in a dark world. And they see us and they wonder and they hate. They ask questions and we give the answer. And we say, you know what? I've trusted him. And he is who he says he is. I've experienced him. And he'll save you too. I want you to take your hymnals and I want us to stand and sing, There is a Redeemer, hymn number 365. 365. There 